everyone. Welcome to the CSPI podcast. I'm here today with Robert Plowman. Robert, how are you today? Fine, thank you. I'm pleased to be here. Okay, and we're here today to talk about your uh, book, uh, Blueprint, How DNA Makes Us uh, Who We Are. Before we get into it, can you just talk a little bit about your background? What do you do? And maybe just a little summary of what the book is about. Yeah, I'm a psychologist, and I um, uh, got into behavioral genetics in graduate school sort of by chance. I went to University of Texas at Austin, and they were the only place in the world that had a program in behavioral genetics back in the early 70s. So I got in there at the beginning, and it's been quite a ride in the subsequent almost 50 years now getting into the DNA revolution. And so this book, uh, Blueprint, is a summary of, well, more than a summary, it's kind of my take on where we've been over these 50 years. And as I say, it's been quite a ride because when I was in graduate school um, in psychology, you wouldn't see the word genetics. We were taught that schizophrenia was caused by what your mother did to you in the first few years of life. Psychology was completely dominated by environmentalism, the view that you are what you learn. So I think the field has changed dramatically over these years, it's sort of a mountain of evidence showing the importance of genetic influence, that is inherited DNA differences. And then in the last 10 years, kind of the second stage of this rocket took off, which is the DNA revolution, where we can actually identify specific bits of DNA that predict behavior. And that's what my book's about, basically, how DNA makes us who we are. Yeah, so you said the University of Texas was the only behavioral genetics department in the country in the 1970s? Yeah, it's, it's quite interesting. It was, it was very much by chance. You know, that was after the Sputnik era in the late 60s, where universities were given truckloads of money to catch up. And so Gardner Lindsay, a former president of the American Psychological Association, was really trained as a, a Freudian. He did work on incest taboos. But in the 60s, he began to see that genetics was important. And so to lure him from Harvard, the University of Texas at Austin asked, what would you like? What can we give you? And he said he'd like to hire all the behavioral geneticists in the world, which was uh -huh. about six people. Uh -huh. And so he brought them all to the University of Texas. And so they had this excellent program in behavioral genetics. And Back in those times, I think it's, I don't know if it's true anymore, but when you go into graduate school in psychology, you had to take a, a, a two years, basically. It's a four-year program, two years of courses. It was like being an undergraduate. They assumed wow. you didn't know anything about psychology. So you had to take courses in perception and clinical and personality. So all the major areas of psychology. And one of those at Texas and nowhere else in the world was behavioral genetics. And so here I was in this class with 40 new sort of PhD students. This was actually in, uh, towards the end of my first year in graduate school. And it just floored me. You know, it just, I just knew uh, from the start that this is what I wanted to do because I hadn't known anything about it. I'd gotten nothing about genetics. And I saw some of the early work, especially animal studies, and I was impressed by the power of the findings. But what's even weirder is I was with 39 other very bright students graduate students in this program, not one of them went on to become interested in behavioral genetics. Uh -huh. So it's an example of the idiosyncratic experiences that are so important in our lives. That's part of what um, Blueprint is about. That is, the environment works very differently from the way we thought it worked. The environment's important, 
but it's not due to these systematic effects of family environment that psychologists from Freud onward always assume that that's the way the environment works, but it doesn't. Whatever it does, it's making two kids in the same family different from one another. We call this non-shared environment, but we'll probably get into that a bit later. Sure. Yeah. This reminds me actually of a, of a story. I mean, I, my background is in uh, political science. So I took a class in political psychology and I had already, um, I had read, you know, about the twin studies, the adoption study. So I knew about, um, I knew about the role that heredity plays in, you know, human behavior and human, uh, determining differences between individuals. And then in our political intro, uh, political psychology course, we had a few weeks on genetics out of, you know, 10 weeks we had with the quarter system, uh, at UCLA. And I, you know, I knew this literature and I knew the methodology, but than the professor did because I had done a lot of reading on it um, and, you know, of course, better than the students too. And then he, um, at one point, he asked me, you know, these these uh, effect sizes are absolutely massive. When, it, when they say 60% of the variation is explained or 80% of the variation is explained, does that mean what it means in, you know, the rest of psychology? And I said, yes, it does. <laughs> That's yeah. a clue that what these behavioral geneticists are doing, you know, is very, very important. So we were, you know, we were getting into things like the heredity of, uh, of uh, political beliefs and things like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I didn't become a, you know, behavioral geneticist, but I mean, I, I am with you in that this this stuff is absolutely it's 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 mind blowing. I mean, I think the uh, the nature versus nurture question is just pretty much it's something you know you, you could call it the fundamental question in the social sciences, and mm. everything I think has to be built on that. You have to understand you know before anything you understand anything else, just how much of what we are is genetic and how much is just the rest of the environment before you even get to um, which environment which environmental effects are having an influence on us. Yeah, well, that's exactly what uh, floored me in graduate school in this core course they used to call it in behavioral genetics, is that these weren't just statistically significant findings. We're talking about, on average, say 50% of the variance, that is the differences between people in all psychological traits, is due to inherited DNA differences. Now, that isn't 100%, but 50% is off the scale. You know, there are very few psychological findings you can point to that account for 5% of the variance. So it is extraordinary. And that's one of the things I noticed. You know, I, it was mostly in the 70s, early 70s. This, the research in the 60s was basically animal research, which is very powerful because if you can select for behavior, like in mice who have very quick generations, you know, you can get three or four generations a year in mice. It's sort of the proof of the pudding of genetic influence that these children, the offspring, the pups, will resemble their parents. So you really can select for these traits, which uh, animal husbandry has known about for thousands of years. They knew you could select, not just for bodies, but also for behavior. So um, that's the sort of thing that, you know, really made me sit up and pay pay attention to it. But um, I'm kind of amazed that you brought that into political science or political psychology even, because um, it was pretty rare. You that you would get any sort of genetics in those courses. But now I think political scientists, economists are leading the charge for genetic influence. 
Yeah, I, I hope that's true. I mean, the reaction to the students was, I mean, it was uh, sort of they were, they, you know, they, uh, they were, they were just more skeptical of it than just about anything else, and they were even uncomfortable. You know, they would, ha- yeah. they, it would always, uh, they would always, you know, the discussion would always drift towards what are the political and social implications of this, which which we would never do with you know any other thing. So I mean, the, there's the resistance is still very strong, even though you know it was on the syllabus, and we did talk about it. Uh, yeah. So the night. So the one thing about that. Is, um, I don't know why the environment gets to wear a white hat and genetics has the black hat. I agree, yes. Because you think of just an example I gave of schizophrenia. Mothers back in the 70s, you don't know you have a schizophrenic child until they're in their late teens or early 20s. And then you're told, well, that's a lifelong sort of chronic condition. And then you're told it's what you did to the kid in the first few years of life. I mean, how wicked is that? Especially because it's dead wrong. There's no evidence that that's true. And yet that's what parents would have been taught. And that's why parents of children who grow up to have psychopathology are the biggest supporters of genetic research. Um, Some people say, yeah, well, it gets them off the hook. But that really pisses me off because they they aren't on a hook. It's not their fault. It's not due to their parental treatment of the children, which was what always was assumed to be causal. So I think it is a very important point that um, increasingly I'm a cheerleader for genetics because, you know, there seems to be still this residue of resistance against the notion of genetic influence. And if you really understand it, you realize it's, it's not bad. I mean, it's important and important findings can be misused as well as used, but there's an awful lot of good that can come out of it, especially with the DNA revolution and being able to identify specific DNA sequences. So... I'll probably end up doing a bit more cheerleading here as we talk. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, we can we can get to the we can get to the science and we can get sort of the political and social implications. But I mean, just because we're going on this path, I'm interested in sort of science funding and the and the and, the, um, and uh, uh, you know how just sort of the systems of knowledge production. So I mean, I'm just interested. I'm just interested to hearing you know this story, maybe uh, pulling on this a little bit more. So in the 19 uh, so the 1960s, 90s, uh, that was when the uh, UT Austin department started by that that was before modern twin studies and adoption studies right what were the first ones to to have been done well the very first twin studies were done in the 1920s um, and then the first adoption study was done in the early 1930s but then what happened is the second world war in nazi germany Uh and that put the end to any genetic research and at about the same time jb watson john watson um, started environment behaviorism which and which led to environmentalism. You know, it's the idea that we are what we learn, basically. It's a learning sort of approach to important experiences in psychology. And that's so dominated psychology. It fit with Freudian thinking as well. And so until the 60s, there was really no very little genetic research. The little bit that was done was more in, in Europe. Um, but then I think Um, psychiatrists first in the 1960s began to realize that this idea that uh, um, heredity is of no importance just doesn't fit with your experience as a clinician. And so there was a famous adoption study in 1966 showing that kids adopted away from their schizophrenic parents were just as likely to become schizophrenic as kids reared with their schizophrenic parents, as well as um, well, so 
that really, that was Heston's study in 1966, and that really got psychiatry moving towards genetics. But psychology uh, hadn't gotten there yet. And then um, in uh, 1969, Jensen had this article um, in the Harvard Educational Review uh, talking about the importance of genetics. And at the request of the editors, he was asked to say something about race differences. And that really uh-huh. lit the fuse. Where he <laughs> said, you know, there's no reason to think that genetics might not be important. But nonetheless, that really got it going. And then Hernstein and um, Murray in, wrote The Bell Curve in uh, 1996. And that, um, as things were dying down from Jensen, that really, yeah. it all took off again. So, you know, um, I think we are making progress, but um, the, the, um, in the 80s and 90s, th- there really has been a mountain of evidence, not just from twin studies comparing identical and non-identical twins, but also adoption studies and family studies and now DNA studies. And it's really hard to argue with DNA. You know, you can say, well, there's, prob- there's some assumptions in the twin method. The adoption method also has some assumptions, like maybe kids are selectively placed into homes that are similar to their birth parents. But importantly, twin and adoption studies have completely different assumptions. And if they come up with the same conclusion, you ought to take notice of that. But now with the DNA revolution, where we can say, look, these sequences of DNA predict behavior. It's really hard to argue with that. Yeah, I, I, I didn't know that the Jensen article, I mean, I didn't know the part about race was uh, was at the request of an editor. That's sort of a funny, you know, funny historical, yeah. you know, a uh, little historical yeah. anecdote because, the, the you know, the reaction would have been completely different, you know, had it not been in there. That's right. So, uh, and it was interesting so, because he was very much an environmentalist, Jensen, in the 60s. He was in educational sort of psychology. Uh-huh. But then he started seeing you know, sort of like me, started seeing some of the evidence for genetics. And then as he stuck his toe in the water a bit, you know, he became more and more convinced by the studies. And they were really starting to come out at about that time. Uh-huh. Yeah, sure. And so, um, and, and, the, and so it sounds like, I mean, it sounds like the, the, the initial funding, you said it came after Sputnik. So it wasn't as if there was this big push. In, I mean, so you had this taboo on, um, you had this taboo on genetic research after the second world war. And it seems like it was, um, it was not so much that anybody really wanted to study, study this. It was just that, you know, or a few people did, but it just, that there was so much money available that they were throwing money at all kinds of things. And this happened to be one of those things that, you know, turned out to be very, very powerful. Is, is, that, is that your understanding of the history of it? Yeah, um, it's a little more complicated. They weren't throwing money at genetics because you still had to get past review groups. So when I took my first job, at the, I, w- I went from the University of Texas to take my first job at the University of Colorado, um, and I wanted to do an adoption study because there were a number of twin studies, but there were very few adoption studies. And so I thought it's important to get use this very different method. So I had to try for about, this is as a beginning uh, lecture, uh, assistant professor, I wanted to get a longitudinal study where we studied kids from birth who are adopted away into adopted families and then test the birth parents as well. Because back in those days in the 70s, there were a lot of adopted kids because you know birth control wasn't really available then despite the swinging 60s. Uh-huh. So there were a lot of... Um, women uh, getting pregnant and um, abortion wasn't really possible either for young, you know, single women. So a lot of them gave their babies up for adoption. And, and um, 
there were quite a representative sample too. So it, it wasn't just um, people with problems, for example. So mm. um, I thought it would be a good time to do it. And it was really the last time you could have done it in, in the early 70s, because by the later 70s, uh, abortion became possible, but especially um, contraception. So mm-hmm. I wanted to do this study, but you know, it's sort of like the exactly wrong thing to do as a new assistant professor. You want to do a, mm-hmm. a large-scale, long-term, longitudinal study. And so I tried three times to get funding, and um, it, it was really uh, negativity towards the idea that I was going to do a study that would look at genetic influence. But, you know, I persisted and it took about three years to get funding. So in the meantime, I was spending all my weekends driving from Boulder, Colorado to Denver, Mm. where these Mm. residential homes were for, you know, they call them unwed mothers. These are where women would come from another state in the last trimester and live away so that they could have, you know, an excuse uh, so that no one back in their home uh, territory would know that they mm-hmm. had been pregnant. Mm. So I, I spent my weekends going there testing these unwed mothers for about on a three-hour battery of tests because I didn't have any money to do it at that time. So we ended up with um, 250 children adopted away where we tested their birth mothers, sometimes their birth fathers as well. And then we had matched control families, matched to the adoptive families who adopted these kids. So that meant we had parents who were genetically related to the adopted away kids, the birth parents, Mm -hmm. but not environmentally related. Then we had environmentally related parents, the adoptive parents of these kids. And then we had control parents. There's no good word for it. You don't want to say normal parents, but parents Mm -hmm. who share genes and environment with their kids. Right. And so it's a really powerful design. And we found what um, the genetic studies showed from like twin studies that the amazing thing, if you just take uh, it's probably a bad example. People still get up tight when you talk about intelligence or general cognitive ability. But the, you know, the correlation between parents and their offspring when the offspring are, say, adolescents is about 0.35, say. Mm-hmm. Um, I assume your listeners know what a correlation is from zero to one. So 0.35. I think most of them will, yes. Yeah. And people knew that forever in developmental psychology. And they said, yeah, it's just environmental. You know, parents who are brighter give their kids a better environment and the kids uh, then grow up to have higher IQ scores. But you say, well, but what about genetics? And it turns out that the correlation between the birth parents and these adopted away kids, and in those days, the birth parent never saw the kid after the first few days of life. It's part of the deal. Uh They correlate just as much as the parents who reared their kids. (laughs) And then just to finish it off, What's the correlation between the adoptive parents of those adopted children? You know, where they share, they raise the kids from the first few months of life, but they don't share genes with the kids. The correlation is zero. So it seems to me very powerful data, not only showing genetic influence, but also showing that the environment doesn't work the way we thought it worked. That is, the environment's important because Genetics accounts for about 50% of the differences. The environment's the rest of it. But it's not the uh, systematic effects of family environment because those adoptive parents' IQ is not related to their adopted children's IQ. So that's this issue of non-shared environment that I mentioned earlier. So the funding was very difficult, but then um, 
it, well, it's never really easy because, you know, the government just uh, doesn't decide who gets funded. I've been involved in these five-year plans many times, but it doesn't really translate to what gets funded very much because it's these guys on the review committees that decide. And they, uh-huh. you know, they have their prejudices and everything. Um, and, and, you know, they're, if you're trained as an environmentalist, you know, it really takes a lot for you to give credence to this idea that genetics is important. But then I think as you got into the 80s, it became easier because I think the writing was on the wall that genetics is important. And so um, now we're at a point where back in the days in the 70s, I'd have trouble getting money, money to show that genetics might be important. Now you couldn't get money for that because people know everything is heritable. The real uh-huh. trick, the challenge, is to find any psychological trait that shows no genetic influence in an adequately powered study. Yeah. So it's really been a, a remarkable ride over these 40 or 50 years. Yeah. I mean, one thing I like, uh, Robert, in, in your work and listening to you, I've listened to some of your <laughs> interviews, is there is a tendency to undersell this stuff, right? The fact, you know, the fact that what would you just you know the finding the finding that you just said that a parent if your parents give you up at birth you are just as similar to them in IQ and other traits as you would be if they'd raised you and the person who adopted you um, has no correlation with you any more than any other stranger on something like intelligence this yeah. is not something you know and like okay there's caveats like yeah. it doesn't measure ever, across culturally it doesn't measure every um, you know potential contingency or abuse or whatever sure you know we, we could have all those caveats but what's left even after those caveats is absolutely massive and earth-shaking i mean this is something that everyone should know i mean i think it should be something that you you are taught before i think it should be an intro to econ course i think it should be an intro to political science i think it should be in psychology i think uh, politicians and and public intellectuals need to keep these things in their head um i I, you know i I think it's revolutionary i i you know a lot of people like will say this stuff and say okay now we can go back to our old political discussions and our old uh, assumptions about the way the world works but i just think that's wrong i think really appreciating this stuff you know has to shape your view in one way or the other yeah well i couldn't agree more I'm going to quote that <laughs> because um, I, uh, in, in Blueprint, for example, the four pages in the book that get uh, the most attention are four pages in which I, it's, it's provocatively called Parents Matter, but they don't make a difference. So yeah, sure. we, you can see where that rubs people up the wrong way. But I, you know, like you're saying, I want to get people's attention here. I want to say that the most important thing parents need to know about child rearing is genetics. And yet you look at the literally thousands of books on parenting, try Mm -hmm. to find one that takes genetics seriously. They don't. You know, they all assume that parents have to follow what Dr. So-and-so says or their kids are going to be screwed up. And I think it's really wicked because, you know, there's a lot of anxiety in being a parent. And I think what parents need to know is that most of the variance is out of their control. It's genetic. And what's worse is the environmental variance, I think, is largely due to idiosyncratic, stochastic, chance influences, which parents don't have control over either. So the sure. implication of this is not that parents don't matter. They do. You know, you, kids can't grow up by themselves. And growing up, as Judith Harris used to say, who wrote this famous book um, about shared and non-shared environment, um, the nurture assumption is what it's called. Um, right. But, but she says, 
you know, parents matter a lot because it's a large part of the parent's life and the child's life and the relationship sure. is very important. But you don't become a parent to mold your kid to be what you want it to be. And I think the genetic message is find out what your kid likes to do, help them do it, but mostly enjoy the relationship. You know, I think yeah. a good analogy is if you married someone because you said, well, there's some good material here. I'm going to make <laughs> make them into someone that's, you know, really to my liking, you know, it's, it's a recipe for disaster, but that's what so many parents do with their kids. They think that the way their kid turns out is, is just due to the way they um, parented them. And that's really bad. And it's really bad when, you know, I get letters at least every couple of weeks from parents, you know, especially adoptive parents where um, they assume that it's, DNA isn't important. They don't think of DNA. They just think of TLC. So um, I, I knew this in the 60s and 70s, especially where women would, uh, feminists would get uh, pregnant just by going to a bar some night, having a one night stand. And Really? Was this, a, was this a widespread practice? Pardon me? Was this a widespread practice? Well, I don't know. This was Boulder, okay. <laughs> which was a pretty hip, you know, out there sort of place. But I mean, seriously, you know, they, they just thought TLC matters, you know, tender loving care, D DNA never entered their mind. And, you know, it's, you, you hear from these adoptive parents who, <clears throat> you know, it, it, it's a ran, it's a pretty representative sample back in those days, which kids are adopted, but that means the average IQ is 50 and there's all sorts of mental health problems as there is in society. So these adoptive parents have to work very hard to get a kid. You know, you, mm -hmm. you have to show that you can, in those days, you had to actually show you weren't medically able to have a child yourself. And so they go through all this effort. Everything's hunky-dory in infancy and childhood. But then so often by adolescence, some of the kids would go off the rails. And these pe people just can't understand it. You know, they said they did everything they could for their child. But, you know, the thing, and so you tell them, well, but a lot of it's genetics and you did the best you could. Maybe you made them happy while you could, but you're not responsible for their outcome. But what people don't really get is with adoptive parents, it's the same problem all parents have, but it's writ large because the adoptive yeah. parents are not at all genetically related to their kids. But the thing parents have to understand is their kids are only 50% related to them genetically, which means they're 50% different from them genetically. And so, you know, you're, if, there's a great phrase that's been um, uh, uh, attributed to probably half a dozen different people, but it's that parents are environmentalists until they have more than one child. Sure. Because with the first child, you can always explain everything away environmentally. My kid's shy, and they'll give you, why? They'll give you one or two answers. I took her out too much when she was young, or I didn't take her out enough when she yeah. was young. That's the problem with environmental explanations. After the fact, they can explain anything. But the neat thing about genetics is it predicts that kids in a family will be different. So um, so I think that's kind of, so parenting is, I, I was going to write a book. I actually had a contract with Penguin and a big advance to write a book following up on Blueprint about the genetics of parenting. But um, after about nine months of working on it, I realized I just can't, right for parents. I mean, I thought Blueprint was for low level to the point of being condescending, but as I give <laughs> of, of public talks, I realize, you know, um, it probably wasn't uh, simple enough. 
But for a parenting book, you know, you really have to write about, well, when Johnny was young, you know, I did, you, you have to do that sort of personal stuff. And it, I just yeah. can't, can't do it. Yeah. <laughs> and fortunately, because a friend of mine, Daniel, Danielle Dick, just had a book come out last week called the, I think the Child Code or something. But it's a book that's very much about genetics and parenting. And mm-hmm. she, she can she can write in in parentees or whatever you call it. <laughs> She's a mother yeah. of several kids too, so that helps. Yeah, Blueprint is your is your only book, right? No, I've written a, a dozen books um, over the years, but um, uh, it's I stopped writing books in I don't know about ten years ago because well, I felt uh, people weren't really reading books anymore. Is, I was is, always is amazed when my graduate it? students came and they were talk, doing a review in an area. And they missed this classic book, but it's because everything's in terms of journals and and what's recent. So I don't think mm. in your field, I think in political science, there's probably more attention paid to books. But boy, in the psychological science, books are really passe now. Um, and I realized that you could make much more impact by writing uh, highly visible articles, for example. Yeah. But I, I think that's, I think that's doing, true. I just, I just loved doing books because, you know, as you know, writing articles for journals are very, it's very constrained, you know, they're, they have to be tight and increasingly journals are wanting articles of no more than 3,500 words or 4,000 words. So uh, unlike your field as well, but in psychological or biological science, they want really short articles. And that's so constraining for thinking in a way. And so what I love about a book is for a year or two, it's kind of your anchor. You know, I, I write in the mornings, early mornings, very early mornings. And it's always nice. You wake up and you, you say, God, I'm just going to do that. My rule in the morning is I get up at three. And so my rule is that I only do things I want to do. You know, so if I'm working on a book or reading stuff, I, I don't let any of the real world intrude, you know, grant reports yeah. or student papers or things like that. And so it's... um. It's a lovely existence to have this steady anchor there, whereas articles, you know, every few weeks, you know, it, rarely do they take more than a month or so to write. And so it doesn't give you that same, I don't know what it is. It's it's an anchor, I suppose. So yeah, you can, I mean, you I, can I, see I, I'm warming up to do another book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it was the, I was asking because you said it's uh, to the level of, you know, condescension. I think for, for a popular book, you know, I, I don't think that uh, blueprint was that simplified, but I can, I can understand if you're used to, you know, writing for other academics or um, writing uh, uh, different kinds of books. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I've, yeah, I, I'd never like journal articles and I've, you know, moved away from them. I mean, just because even it's not just the length. I mean, there's a format, you know, the literature review, I think, I think it's overdone. You have to, you know, you're you're often get to the point where it's just citations for citation's sake. You know, there's just a lot that I think, you know, that is not pleasant about writing, uh, journal, journal articles, but to go back to the, um, yeah, the point about uh, parents parents not having an influence but actually mattering. I mean, the first question, the, the first way parents matter, and I think this is 
so fundamental, but we we forget it, and I don't know why we forget it. But the but the reason parents matter is because they decide whether to have children in the first place, and huh. how many children to have. And Absolutely. if you are you know un, if you are uh, living under the assumption that every moment you spend with your child or every decision you make is going to be of earth shaking or fundamental importance to how you tur- how they turn out, um, that's you know naturally going to probably lead to you having fewer kids. Um, and right. you know people tend not to. I don't know. People don't think in this way. I mean, my friend, uh, Brian Kaplan, an economist, wrote yes. a book called Selfish Reasons. Just thinking yeah. about him. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So he thinks like this, this way. And I don't think this way, but and I think, and I think this way, but I, you know, I, I just think most people don't, but to me, it's so obvious that, you know, if, you know, if you have two kids and you're so busy with them that you can't have any more, it would be better to just, you know, maybe lay off, lay off a little bit, take it a little easy and have a third. I mean, you matter for that person. I can't believe, you know, even if even if you thought environment was very important, imagine how important it would have to be um, to be preferable, you know, for 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 to put so much investment into, say, one kid or two kids to just not have that third kid exist or not even have that second kid to exist, right? Mm-hmm. Um, existence is good, right? This yeah. is just a, this is just so fundamental. But and, and, I, and also, I don't know why 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 this, the, people don't think along these lines. I agree, and you know, also I think it's important for parents to realize that if you take this genetic perspective, uh, I think a big part of the enjoyment of being a parent is watching your child become who they are genetically. Right. And that is really cool because, you know, you, um, you do, if you, especially if you have more than one child or you, you're in a, you experience a number of kids, you know, the differences are extraordinary. And if you're alert to that, you do see that even from early in life, your children are quite different. And I think that's fascinating. And I, I love the idea of thinking of yourself more as a resource manager. Find out what they like to do and help them to do it. Increasingly, I think ap- uh, appetites, you know, what they like to do is equally important to aptitudes for something. You know, and, and it's the virtuous circle as well. You like sure. to do what you're good at. But parents should notice that and help them go in that direction. You know, because you love them, not because... You, you want to make them into something. You know, you just do nice things. You help people that you love. And that's the way the parenting relationship ought to be. And I'm sure it'll work out better for both the parents and the kids if more parents had that point of view. Yeah. Do you have a sense, I mean, do you have a sense when sort of the culture changed on the parenting issue? I mean, was it the middle of the 20th century? Was it before that? Because I don't think people 100 years ago Right, thought in these thought in these terms. Uh, when, when did this when did this shift? And you know, can we can we say something about how that happened? Besides, you know, just pointing to World War II, which is you know, I mean, it's sort of strange because you had communism, right? And communism killed you know many uh, millions of people, and they were all blank slatists, right? They they uh, were Stalin, very much uh, so. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Stalin. Yeah. I mean, Stalin under Stalin, they they repressed the geneticists. Um, yeah. So it, it's you know, it's hard to just explain. I mean, you know, World War Two, the, the Nazis yeah. were on the other but, side. But, yeah, I think it goes back, though, to, to Watson and, and the early behaviorists who are learning theorists, basically. Um, and Watson wrote popular parenting books that were very much um, uh, behaviorism sort of guides to parenting. You know, he had famous quotes about, don't show your kid too much affection, only 
pat them on the head if you want to reward them for something good. They, you know, he worked mostly with rodents, so they had very strict stimulus response learning sorts of approaches to this, of reward and punishment, for example. And so there were a number of people like that going into the 30s and 40s. And Spock, Benjamin Spock, kind of revolutionized things by saying, no, it ought to be more child-centered and notice what kids, you know, it, it, you, you know, you, it was kind of a, a reaction against this sort of behavioristic learning approach to parenting. But he didn't really talk about genetics, Benjamin Spock. So I think the pendulum's been swinging back and forth in parenting. And now, you know, with these, if, if you go to a, pop, a corner bookshop and you look at the parenting section, you know, there's shelves of these parenting books. And what bothers me is it, it's so bad for psychology because you get one doctor so-and-so who says what you have to do is this and that, and they very authoritatively, no data behind it. Very few of these books are empirically oriented. And then you get someone, you pick up another book, and it will tell you the opposite. Mm, That's yeah. going to be very bad for the field. Um, an economist, um, um, oh, I'm blocking on it, Ost Oster, I think, O-S-T-E-R? Yeah, I'm Emily, Emily Oster. Emily, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, her book is great because as a mother, she said, well, she's an economist and an empiricist. And so she thought she'd look at the data and she saw how little empirical basis there was for what people were saying you should do. So her book is really great on that score. But it does end up saying there isn't too much you can say. I mean, she says, vaccinate your kid. But, but yeah. beyond that, there isn't a lot you can <laughs> say. And I think the point of it is that you can't say what to do for all kids because there are all kids are different. And, you know, some parenting books say that, but genetics really provides a concrete basis for that. And that's what Daniel, Danielle Dick's um, recent book on the child code is about, um, you know, thinking about these issues from a genetic perspective. So yeah. I don't know if that really answered your question about the history of it. There's, there are books written about, the, you know, how parenting uh, advice has changed over the years. But right now, it's just higgly piggly. I mean, you can get every sort of perspective. There isn't like one dominant perspective now. Yeah. It's the, um, so the, uh, um, yeah, that's, um, it's interesting because you, you, you know, you talked about earlier that the, um, the, the funding situation is getting, is getting better, right? Um, you know, you're, you're able to go and you're able to get something funding. I mean, you get something funded. I mean, I went to actually the, uh, Boulder, I was laughing when you were talking about it uh, for my undergrad and, um, my, my major was in linguistics and I took classes in all kinds of departments. I mean, there was, there was no, uh, influence of, you know, anything could be genetic. I had a cultural anthropology course where they told us, you know, the differences between men and women were, were all environmental, you know, much less differences, you know, things like intelligence or, 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 or anything. Um, and then you talk about the parenting books and they're still, you know, they're still so overwhelmingly blank slatist or environmentalist in their outlook. Um, you know, are we going to, you know, is, is are we basically in a place now and is this going to continue where you have the truth out there in academic journals and in books and, you know, people who want to know what's going on are basically going to be able to find out. But for the general culture, I mean, it just, it, it's just sort of, you know, the, the, the uh, good science is done in a box and pa parenting and, you know, political science and uh, anthropology and everything else just continues as before. Is this where we're headed or is there a way for, you know, this, these findings to break out of the box and, and have a major influence on the wider culture. Yeah. Well, that's why I wrote my book, Blueprint. And um, there, 
you know, I've taken a long view on it. You know, I don't enter the, uh, I don't do social media, for example. I don't, I, I, I felt long ago that I wanted to spend my time doing the research and hoping that psychology would stay in empirical science and that eventually data would win out. And I think the data has, but as you point out, at that academic level, and th- th- there's big changes in the public reception. I mean, I find now when I, I've given dozens, scores of talks about Blueprint to public you know, audiences, and there's no hostility now. Whereas in the past, uh-huh. you know, people were really hostile. So that's progress of a sort. And the people I talk to, you know, they say it's, they just didn't know about it. And, the, you know, I do get letters from people saying how it's changed their life to realize how important genetics is. But you're absolutely right that there had, my book certainly didn't break through to the public in that way. And uh, I, my hope, though, is with the DNA revolution and the ability to do DNA testing on your DNA or increasingly your children's DNA, that really is going to make the difference. It'll happen first in the medical area. But, um, you know, 27 million people have paid to have their DNA testing done through these direct-to-consumer companies where you just send in some saliva and they do what we call a genome-wide uh, genotyping. They genotype millions of DNA differences, and they put them together. First, you can predict the thousands of single gene disorders, but more importantly for psychology is we can put thousands of these little differences together in what we call a polygenic score to predict complex traits and common disorders. And I think that's really what will make the difference. And for some reason in Southeast Asia, this is huge. Um, China is already not, not just doing DNA testing, they're doing whole genome sequencing where you sequence all 3 billion base pairs of DNA. And that's the end of the story. That's all you inherit. So they're doing that for half of the 15 million babies born every year. Oh, wow. And, and some is countries- it a government- is it like, a government database or who's yeah who, that's who's, a scary who, thing yeah but um in finland and, and uh, estonia for example if you go into the hospital they'll ask if you want your dna tested and they'll do it for medical traits not just for single gene disorders though they'll do it for cardiovascular disease because it's a no-brainer in medicine that you want to move yeah. away from waiting till someone has a heart attack and then trying to fix it which costs a lot of money and a lot of loss of quality of life, to predicting and then preventing heart attacks. And DNA is the best early warning system we have because the DNA with which you began as a single cell is the same DNA in all the trillions of cells in your body. So you can get DNA from saliva or blood or skin or any tissue because it's the same DNA and it doesn't change during your life which means you can predict from birth just as well as you can in adulthood. And what we know about interventions is the, the earlier you intervene, it's kind of a general rule, the more likely you are to prevent uh, problems from occurring. So preventive medicine is a very big deal, as is precision medicine, which is the idea that instead of... Um, Uh, administering drugs, for example, on a one-size-fits-all approach, you try to 
specialize. You say, this dosage, this drug works particularly well or particularly badly for people with this genotype. And so it's, we call it gene environment interaction or gene by treatment interaction. So that's another huge area of medical research. And so I think without doubt, medicine will be the area where this happens first. But once you have your DNA tested, you can use that same test to get DNA predictors for any trait, including psychological traits. So again, if you take a long view on it, uh, Francis Collins said 10 years ago, he would be amazed if in 10 years, we weren't doing whole genome sequencing for all newborns. Uh Here we are 10 years later, and they're still doing pilot studies at NIH, you know, because there's a lot of pushback on it for reasons you could understand. Gattaca sort of reasons, if you know that science fiction film from 1997, uh-huh. um, which is sort of a genetic dystopia where you could pre- a child's fate is kind of sealed at the moment of conception when they do this DNA testing and they do embryo selection and all the things that people worry about with designer babies. But again, yeah. I, um, I can see a lot of good that can come from all of this. And I think there's a lot of good that's come already. And I think it's going to happen. It's, it's not even going to happen. It is happening. When 27 million people have paid to do this, um, it, 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 is, it is happening. And that's why I wanted to write the book, to give people the DNA literacy that they need to discuss this intelligently and, and to try and you know, get people to take it as a serious proposition without this knee-jerk reaction. Ooh, genetics bad, environment good. So, But as you say... It, I don't think blueprint wasn't the breakthrough that we need. So I don't know where it's going to come from, except I just have this vague notion that um, DNA testing is going to be the answer. And I do think, although people are very worried about direct-to-consumer testing, yeah, um, what I worry about, the NHS and the National Health Service in the UK is piloting this as well, uh, DNA testing. Because as I say, it's such a no-brainer from a medical point of view. Um, but they probably will only give people actionable information, which for a lot of people is all you want. I mean, if I told you you're at uh, a tenfold greater risk of having a heart attack by your 40s, uh, you would, it would get your attention. And if I said, you know, here are some approaches, low-tech approaches, or getting into higher-tech approaches, I think you'd be game for that. But And that's probably all some people want. But other people say, well, it's my DNA. I sort of want to know everything. I want to know about even my risk for Alzheimer's. You know, yeah. with 23andMe, I'm sure your audience knows about them. They're the largest direct-to-consumer company. They're, I think of the 27 million, 7 or 8 million are 23andMe. And mm-hmm. um, they would actually provide information on one particular gene that inc- increases your risk for Alzheimer's um, from about 10, 15%, which we all have at 85 years of age to about 60%. Mm-hmm. And as medical risks go, that's astronomical. I mean, it still sure. isn't a hundred percent, but that's astronomical. And if I ask a public audience, would you want to know? Because with 23andMe, um, there's like a triple lock on it. They don't just give you the information. You have to say, yes, you want that particular piece of information. Right. And then they give you some links to things to read about it. And they say, do you still want to know about this? <laughs> and then there's a third lock on it. So, you know, they, but then um, the bad part about this is 
it's only 1% of the population that would have the 60% risk. But if you were that poor soul with the 1% uh, in, in the population and found out you had a 60% risk, they don't provide any follow-up service. They say, well, here's a link or you know that sort of thing. So I would hope that if you do it with the National Health Service or something, there would be much more support for you. Um, because, uh, but anyway, when I ask a public audience, would you want to know, like your, your listeners, you know, you could do this with 23andMe. You could find out, are you in that unlucky 1% where you have a 60-fold risk? And I find it splits right down the middle. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what the personality traits are behind it, but mm-hmm. you ask the people who don't want to know, why don't you want to know? And they say, well, duh, you know, you can't do anything about it. It would ruin your life. That's reasonable. <laughs> is is this at what, what, what age was this? This is at, you'll find out at what age? Well, at birth, if you wanted to. No, no, I mean, but but, uh, but you said 16% to 60% by by age. What what was it? Oh, I see. At 85, we all have like a 10 or 15% uh, risk, you know, yeah, which I is a very high risk. Yeah. Right. But right. Um, it goes up to yeah. 60%. If you have a double dose of this one apolipoprotein E4, it's called. Um, but yeah. The, I think a lot of many, people assume there's a good chance that, you know, they'll be dead at 85 anyway. So it seems like a very, very long, long time well, off. Right. But, you know, the yeah. other half who, like me, who say, no, I want to know, then, you know, some people think, well, that's really dumb because you can't do anything about it. I say, well, you can do something about it. You can prepare for it if you knew you had sure. that risk. You know, you could set yourself up economically and even socially. You could, you know, have support systems in place to cover that. And then I also think, for me, there would be a very hefty dose of carpe diem if I knew I had that sort of risk of, you know, losing my mind later in life. Mm-hmm. Sure. And, yeah. and also by getting these genetic predictors, it it's much more likely that we'll find out ways to prevent it or at least ameliorate the risk. Because um, you don't learn anything about much about dementia from studying demented people. I mean, their brain is just gone. And you don't learn about alcoholics from studying alcoholics. You know, if you've ever seen um, a post-mortem brain of an alcoholic, you don't need a microscope to see what's wrong. It's like someone threw battery acid at it, you know. But if you can find out how you can intervene to prevent these things, or at least ameliorating the risk, that's the way it's going to go. And with DNA, we finally have a predictor. And it's a causal predictor in the sense that um, there's no backward causation, you know. Um, which is unlike yeah. uh, unlike other predictors in psychology. You know, correlations don't imply causation. So X and Y are correlated. That could be because right. X causes Y or Y causes X, or a third factor causes both of them, like genetics. But when you correlate inherited DNA sequence with behavior, you there's no backward causation. Nothing changes that DNA sequence. So that makes yeah. it a unique predictor. So when you mentioned uh, earlier, you said what they were doing in China, they were sequencing the genomes of half of uh, newborns. Um, you said S- Southeast Asia. Is it just China or are we just talking about China or are there other countries in that area yeah. who are doing well, similar things? Yeah. Well, that's um, um, the Chinese national government. But in the rest of Southeast Asia, I mean, Singapore, um, Hong Kong, Taiwan, for some uh-huh. reason, the, par- the, the hot thing now in direct-to-consumer testing is for parents to do the DNA testing of their kids. It's even marketed, believe it or not, as the go-to shower gift. Yeah, wow. And then there's these companies then who on the basis of the genetic testing um, tell parents that they will provide uh, parenting advice along the way that's 
personalized to their child's genotype. Okay, that seems now, a little that more goes way beyond the data. But again, <laughs> that's where I think this could go. Yeah. It's interesting. You say Singapore, Taiwan, Hong Kong. I mean, these are still, you know, all majority Chinese places. So it seems like it's just it's the Chinese and sort of Chinese over overseas who be who are really into this stuff. What, what do you think about, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, the way to sort of break through our sort of stupor on this, maybe some kind of international competition if China takes these things seriously? I mean, if you you could potentially get to things like embryo selection, genetic, genetic engineering um, and, you know, just the, the biomedical knowledge that you derive um, for, from this technology, could that perhaps perhaps be a path that will, you know, uh, make the West maybe take notice of uh, genetics and maybe take it a little more seriously? I hadn't thought about that, but the, I mean, it's kind of, you'd like to think people would do it for, from a pure intellectual point of view. You're, <laughs> sure, you're absolutely humanity, right yeah. <laughs> that nothing will get things going faster than competition. And, you know, already um, uh, Chinese parents do, in America at least, seem to put a lot more energy into making their kids do as well as possible at school. And I think the interest in genetics might be part of that same academic orientation or whatever. And it seems a bit contradictory because you're because you're you're you want to know a lot about genes because they matter, but you also think by, you know, really pushing your kids, you can cause them to succeed, right? Yeah, except that I think the way they market these parenting sort of DNA testing things is um, differential testing. So in, we don't have the genomic data for this yet, but eventually you'll be able to predict specific profiles of strengths and weaknesses. And so it might help you to realize, you know, your kid is really good at math sorts of things uh -huh. or maybe more verbally oriented or, right. you know, so I think that's the way it will go. And that's what these companies are pretending to provide, but the data just aren't there yet for them to do it. There's no regulation of these DNA direct-to-consumer companies, so it's a real wild west, and it's crap. I mean, you know, it, it's going to lead to a backlash when people realize that these companies want their DNA. That's part of the big data thing. It's the ultimate big data in a way, but they're providing parents with crap information. I mean, the, the level of what they provide would never pass muster for a publication. Yeah. But, the, you know, but that being said, I mean, you just talked about, you know, I'm, I'm more inclined to not want to regulate it, even if I agree with you that it's, it's, it's bad advice. I mean, because we have books, we, we just talked about parenting yeah. books that are based on nonsense science, right? And people buy those exactly and they take it right. seriously. And so, exactly you know, right. I, I think government, yeah, I think government regulation could only go you know, I think you. I think if you've looked at public opinion polls on these things, you know, people are you know very uh, scared of genetics and you know don't want to be really doing anything. And I think you know the you know just having a few companies that sort of scam their uh, you know scam people, but also you know do actually provide the scientific service and do build up the database, right, and do provide you know resources that could eventually tell us something. You know, I, I think that's the lesser evil. I think I think the lazy fair attitude here is yeah. you know it might yeah. might actually be best. I agree completely and. Especially when the bottom line here is it's your DNA. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, that's that's sort of decisive, right? Yeah. The um, uh, yeah. This I mean, this is yeah. This is all. I mean, this is all fascinating. And I, yeah, I think so. I think something. I mean, it's not the technology is moving so fast that I mean, even if our political and you know the social discussions around these things are sort of stagnant and not 
being influenced. I mean, but the, by a seemingly by a lot that's going on. Yeah, and people's personal lives, like you talk about the the women in Boulder uh, getting pregnant by some random person. I don't think that happens anymore, right? I, I think that the people are taking you know in their own lives at least, and I think people become rational in their own lives become that before they become rational about politics. Um, yeah, people. I mean, people seek out the kind of sperm that you know you would expect them to th- seek out if if they thought genes were um, were very important. Um, you know, along you, those uh, lines too, I'm struck by um, all the conversations going on about, say, the National Health Service providing DNA testing, and people are so careful and cautious. And I can see the reasons for that. But what I want to tell them is, you, people don't need you. They don't need the government. They're doing this on their own. And and the, the more the government, you know, uh, controls it and determines what's happening, I, I don't think uh, the government um, has as much power over people unless they try to shut down the direct-to-consumer companies. And like sure. you, you know, I, I would, I'm trying to shame them into providing decent data. Now, like 23andMe, they don't do these polygenic scores. These are new in the last few years, these polygenic scores. But that's where it's at in terms of psychology. Um, but the single gene stuff, you know, is very accurate you know, from all these companies because, you know, high school yeah. kids could do it. You know, it's not, it's not high-tech stuff anymore. It, they're just pipelines for doing these things. Um, but um, with the polygenic scores, it, it kills me because – it would take these companies no more effort to do it properly, but they're just doing a shit job at it. And I, you know, it's just scandalous really that they would do that. They just take a few genes and pretend that they've got a polygenic score, but it's like, you know, 5% as predictive as it could be if they had done it right. And then they also don't provide the information for interpreting it. So I kind of think what my goal is, I'm actually, testing some of these companies, you know, um, through using students and stuff and, um, and then comparing their results. And, you know, some people have done this, but not at a polygenic score level. And if you could just say, here's the way it ought to be. And then, you know, like companies ought to provide anchor information on height and weight. We know completely how that should work, how much variance you should predict and how to interpret it. You know, you don't just, you, you have to, you have to tell people about effect size and things like that. So there's, you have to convey this information in a meaningful way. And I do hope, I'm a real Pollyannish optimist sort of person, but I do hope if you say, here's what it ought to look like and get a company to do that, which I think we have one, imputeme.com is a nonprofit run by this Finnish investigator. I think it, you quickly get other companies saying, oh shit, we better do this right. Yeah especially when it doesn't cost them anything, you know, that's yeah. the killer. Well, they, they might have some marketing. I mean, they might have some marketing. So, I mean, you could do, you could give people their uh, predicted, you know, IQ, for example. I can think of good reasons why a, um, why a business might not want to do that, right? So maybe, maybe they've done the market research and they've realized people sort of, you know, you give them a simplified message, you have this gene or not, and maybe the, the GWAS scores are, are a bit too complicated. And, you know, maybe, maybe that's a rational business decision. Yeah, uh, I, I, but, I don't but know. No, because all the new companies, that's the whole thing, is these polygenic scores. For diets, for cosmetics, that's a huge area. You know, saying if you have these, this genetic profile, you should be using this type of skin cream, for example. Um, yeah. Uh, Exercise is a huge area as well. Fitness, 
So these are all polygenic scores because single genes don't really mm. count for that. You know, they um, these single gene effects are very bad if you have them, but they're very rare and they don't really contribute much to variance in the population. Yeah. So, so my hope is, I think we could have some sort of, I mean, what do you call it? Like a, a quality mark system. Uh, uh, that so, wouldn't so, be too difficult to do. Yeah. I mean, you could, you could you real, I mean, it's, it's, it's funny because yeah, you could, you could potentially have a, you know, your government regulates, you know, this or that and, you know, truth and advertising, but given how, you know, given how, like, for example, if you applied the standard saying you can't, uh, you know, the government's going to come in and you can't say things about, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, pr- uh, predictions made from the genome that, that uh, you know, they, you can't uh, overestimate, you know, how much we know and things like that. Um, you know, you have to think about, you know, what sort of government doing in other things, right? If government is having a, um, a, a an education policy that assumes the only differences between, you know, higher class children and lower class children is environmental, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, the government, you know, you're, the government is, is lying to people in the same way, probably worse than the, the yeah. private corporation. So the fact that well, <laughs> government can't figure that out, right, yeah. makes it sort of difficult. Well, to see I wasn't them. clear because my, my goal was to keep it away from the government. And you know yeah. how there are these trade organizations that sure. set standards, you know, like if you go for a plumber or something, yeah, they I have that, that makes these sense. little rating systems. So I think, you know, it, I think it might work better that way if you say, well, you, you know, to, you, you, you get like a, a B rating rather than an A rating or two star or three star sort of rating through a trade organization. And I, I really think that would work because they must realize that what they're doing is crap and that's going to be bad. It's going to bite them in the end because yeah. people like me are going to show that the, the data I get from some of these companies is worthless. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's an. I mean, that's an optimistic story. You're certainly in a position to to build. You know, to have some credibility to talk about what these companies are doing. So, yeah. I mean, I wish you wish you the best of luck in that. I, you know, I, I was just thinking when you were talking about the uh, the Chinese parents and the you know the uh, the results that maybe tell you, okay, your kid's a little more math inclined or a little bit more uh, musically inclined. If we get to the world where we're good enough, you know, we know enough about. Um, uh, genetics to predict that, then parenting might actually matter, right? Our adoption and twin studies might not be so good because maybe you actually do have the tools to actually shape shape children's outcome. Or would it be, is it like, or maybe are we, are we just not taking this stuff seriously enough? Because, you know, if, you know, zero really means zero, and maybe there is, you know, a way to make a mathematically inclined kid more into math, but maybe he's just, you know, his level of math love and you know ability and interest is just going to sort of be what it is do you have any any thoughts on that yeah very much so i think the way genes work is um to help us you know they don't work independent of the environment if you've ever seen these really mathematically gifted kids like one of my students has this uh, uh um foundation in russia for, for some reason they seem to have a lot of mathematically gifted kids and if you see these kids early in life they just live math you know they joke about math they yeah. talk math basically with their friends and they have friends who are interested in math as well and i think that's the way genes work to influence complex traits like mathematical ability it's not hardwired in the brain i think that's why i said before it's more like it's as much app appetites as it is aptitudes and if if you have this genetic propensity then you um select and modify and create environments that are correlated with your propensities 
And that's where I think parents can make a difference. If they recognize what their kids are good at and like to do, they can help them do that. And that's, that's, that's an environmental influence, but we call it a gene environment correlation. It's not like the environment overriding genetic propensities. Instead, it's kind of going with the genetic flow. Right. You see what I mean? So I think that's an important way in which the environment works, I think. I talk about it as uh, active, an active model of experience, as opposed to the standard psychology approach to environment, which is an imposed environment. This comes back to the stimulus response theory of early learning psychology, where the environment's out there, and it's what happens to us, like, very much like, you're a rat in a cage and the experimenter's out there and he decides to shock you or not when you do something. That's an imposed environment. But I think with um, genetics, we're talking about this idea of active involvement with your environment to create experiences. And I think even to perceive environments, you know, it isn't, um, it isn't the objective environment that some observer records on a videotape. What's important is your perception of the environment because that's, what's experienced. So anyway, this is a, a topic near to my heart because I think that's the way the environment works with genetics, whereas we don't ever study that because our measures of the environment are passive in the sense that we measure the environment out there as it happens to us. And Do you think we, that by focusing so much on parenting in the last, you know, several decades post-World War II era, we've sort of let society and government off the hook because we know not everything is genetic. We know, for example, say in the 1960s, the crime rate, you know, multiplied by, you know, uh, uh, several times, right? We know out-of-wedlock birth rates are much higher than before. So something, you know, that, that wasn't the result of a genetic change. Something was happening in the environment. It probably wasn't that parents... Um, had treated their kids differently, right? But there was something we as a society did that changed the environment and, you know, ma made made people different than they had been in previous generations. Um, by focusing on parents, do we sort of, you know, just let society, let these sort of idea, some ideas, let government off the hook sort of with the for, for problems that have happened that aren't actually the fault of parents but are the fault of something else? Well, it's an interesting idea. See, I think in terms of individual differences and the way I think of the, you're talking about mean secular changes, average changes exactly, in yeah, a population. Right. And the way I look at it is that, um, that genetic, when we talk about things being heritable, we're talking about it in the context of a specific environment. We're describing, given the range of genetic and environmental influences, to what extent are genetic differences between people important in that environment at that time. And if you change the environment, this can all change because these are descriptive statistics, just like means and variances describe a particular population at a particular time. But furthermore, what I see is when the environment changes, like there's moderate genetic influence on alcoholism, for example. But if you have a society where there's no alcohol, Mm -hmm. then you're not going to be alcoholic. Whereas if you have uh, an environment like um, the college system in the U.S., it's like trying to find out who has a genetic propensity for alcoholism, you know, yeah. by giving people's, almost forcing alcohol on people. So um, what will happen as, say, as alcohol, you go from the prohibition, which didn't really prohibit alcohol, but if you made alcohol more available, then the people with the genetic risk are more likely to become alcoholic 
as well as the population average alcohol consumption going up. But it is an important distinction that the causes of average differences, like these secular changes you're talking about, are not necessarily related to the causes of individual differences. And yeah. the class, classic example of that is when uh, the Japanese came to America, in one generation, their kids were two inches taller than the parents. So that clearly can't be a genetic effect. It has to be yeah. environmental. Nobody yeah. still knows exactly what it was, but the heritability was just the same. So the kids, who, although the kids are two inches taller on average, the tallest kids are from the tallest parents. And that's genetic. Uh, yeah, I, I understand that. I understand the distinction uh, there. I was just thinking in terms of how we think about these issues. So, I mean, I think that we, you know, you often like, for example, you'll hear people blame um, these changes in the mean based on parenting. So there's this book by uh, Jonathan Haidt and a co-author yeah, that talked about yeah. hel helicopter parenting. And so, you know, there might, you know, there, that might, that's probably, you know, it's not, you can't disprove it, I think, you know, because maybe, you know, we don't, we don't know about shifts in parenting, you know, maybe, maybe there's shifts in parenting can like change mm -hmm. something. Right. Um, but within the society, um, the genetic, um, the genetic influence is similar, but it's, I think our prior on that has to be, it's probably whatever happened, you know, in the last decade or two or the last several decades is probably something else besides Besides parenting, do you have a similar intuition there? Like if you say, um, if you say, for example, if you show that, for example, uh, depression and anxiety have gone up in the last 10, 20 years, as a first guess, if we're investigating the um, the causes of that, uh, parenting would probably sh probably should not be the first thing we look at, or you know, our prior should be it's probably something else. You think that's a good right. way to? Jonathan Haidt says uh, social media. Yeah, exactly. Right, but he also I, he also writes about parenting too. So you know that's uh, you know that's a, that's a, another potential explanatory variable. And the question is, does behavioral genetics tell us anything about the plausibility of that? I think not. I mean, I really do think it's important to emphasize that the causes of these mean differences can be completely different. So a mm. trait can be very highly heritable, like height, for example, and you could change it drastically simply by messing up kids' nutrition. Yeah. You know, so, or, so do you think so? it's a plausible theory, I guess, that all parents say in this generation compared to the last generation all started doing something right or started behaving in a way that the previous generation didn't. And that was one of the influences of shifting the mean in, say, anxiety or, or whatever. Yeah. Well, I mean, do you see what I'm the saying? first point I would make is that heritability doesn't really speak to the extent to which something can change on average like that. And, yeah. um, and it's also very hard to pin down the cause of a mean difference because, yeah, social media began about the time that the increase in depression and anxiety, especially for girls, happened. But there's a lot else that happened then, too. But, you know, I, I find it plausible. But I guess the point I'm making is it's very difficult to have the killer data, the definitive data that proves a cause of an average mean difference, whereas genetics is very powerful for studying the genetic and environmental, environmental etiology of individual differences. Yeah. Okay. So let me, um, yeah, let's just, uh, for, I think for our final topic, um, we talked about a little bit about, we touched on a little bit about the political implications of the social implications of, uh, the behavioral genetics, uh, research. Have you read either, um, th there's two books by, um, uh, sort of liberal, uh, hereditarians that came out in the last, uh, year or so, one by Paige Hardin and one by, uh, Frank, uh, Frank DeBoer. Have you, have you read either one of those books? Uh, yeah, I know Paige Hardin's book. What's the other one? 
Uh, I think his name is uh, Frank DeBoer. Um, he's a um, he's, he's a, he wrote he's a he, uh, he's a researcher. He knows about education, and he wrote about specifically about education itself. Have you have you heard of that book? Well, there's another book that was very famous um, in the last year or so um, about education. Uh, I forget it wasn't that author though, so you'll have to tell me about that book. But um, okay, yeah, so think, yeah, yeah, Frank DeBoer. Yeah, he's a um, yeah. So the um, um, yeah, it was mostly about the education system, um, and he's a, he's actually calls he identifies as a communist, but you know as a hereditarian, and was talking about you know g- genetics of intelligence. Oh, but is that either the book way, that has junk in the title. What's the title of that book? Uh, junk in the title. I'm not sure. <laughs> okay. I forget the I, um, I forget the um, the the name of DeBoer's uh, okay book. Well, uh, yeah. Either I'm, way, I'm, we could we could we could talk about Harden. I, I've not read the book. I've listened to her on a few podcasts that I you know I've read a profile, so I mean I, I know a little yeah. bit about it. Um, what, what what did you think of the book? What are your general impressions? Well, I um you know as a do you identify as a political scientist or? Or what? Uh, I identify as a um, I identify as an independent scholar. I really I I, I sort of I've, I've written about how I dislike sort of these artificial divisions between fields. Yeah. Um, so I sort I sort of yeah I, I, no, I agree a with you bit. there. I just I remember you were saying though that your education was your my background is political. Yeah. My my yeah. PhD is in political yeah. science. Um, so I don't know if you'll agree with my view on this. It's an old fashioned view. Is I have spent a lot of time in my career trying to keep science separate from politics. I always try to say there's no necessary policy implications of finding genetic influence. Now, I don't know if you agree with that, but I can give you right-wing examples of what to do with it or left-wing. I think it does depend on your your values, and you'd hope that better policies uh, follows from knowing more. But as I get older, I get more cynical about that. I think policymakers often use the science when it fits what they wanted to do anyway, rather than driving them, you know, uh, rather than the data driving the policy. But um, Hardin is explicitly doing the opposite. She's trying to say, I want to convince the left that genetics is not their enemy, that there's reasons for them to understand why genetics is important. And uh, when she first was thinking about doing this three or four years ago, I told her, I I don't think so. Um, (laughs) I I don't think you're going to convince people of that. And and why do you want to but, and given the culture wars that have happened since, I think what she's done is stuck genetics into the culture wars to a greater extent than they were already. And she's getting clobbered from both sides, as I would have predicted. But, you know, the basic genetic argument is much like blueprint, you know, just saying genetics matters. And there's a lot of data that support that. And, you know, but um, I, I don't know. I just stay away from the culture wars and as I say, even from social media, because, you know, I, I'm sure you're very much involved in it, but man, I find Twitter is such a cesspit. And <laughs> it is. No, you're, you're, you're making a, you're making, uh, you're making a smart decision there, although it's great to sometimes connect with people. There's some smart stuff on there too, but I mean, um, yeah, the, the, the political implications, I mean, yeah, you can have different value judgments and you're right that politicians will often just, uh, you know, seize on whatever, whatever supports their view anyway. But let's say, you know, for example, um, your ideology is very, um, you know, it, it can tell you what's true or false. So if your ideology tells you you're going to have equality of outcome, right? You want a world where, you know, people from the lower classes and the people from higher classes produce offspring that are that ha- are equally likely to be Nobel Prize winners or equally likely to become, you know, professors or entrepreneurs or, or billionaires or, you know, whatever, Um 
you just, you know, you can't have that world, right? So, I mean, it does just rule, even if we can have whatever, we can have whatever values we want, but taking genetics seriously doesn't mean we have to rule some things out, doesn't it? Well, I don't know. I'm quite interested in using genetics as a tool um, to do the opposite of what you're talking about. Do you know that most of the brightest kids of the next generation don't come from the brightest parents? They come from parents of average IQ. Sure. And that's because there are very few very bright parents. They probably don't have as many kids on average, but there's regression to the mean. So if PhDs have an average IQ of 130, if two PhD people marry and have kids, the average IQ of their kids won't be 130, it'll be 115. And that's because it's 50% heritable. If it was 100% heritable, they would have an average IQ of 130. And if it was 0% heritable, they'd have an average IQ of 100. So it's in between those two because it's 50% heritable. But still, that's a very small number of kids compared to the kids from parents in the middle of the distribution. And in our study where I have a DNA and about 15,000 kids in the UK, kids in the, the lower SES from parents who didn't go to university, for example, and meet criteria for free school meals and stuff like that. They, there's a wide range of distribution of these polygenic scores in those kids. And yeah. I like the idea of using DNA to select kids who wouldn't otherwise m- meet their genetic potential right. because they're in an environment where it's, you know, there's no motivation to yeah. go ahead academically. Well, I mean, that's, so, yeah, that, I mean, that's, that's, that's fine. I mean, that, that is a, a form of, you know, uh, that, you know, that's a form of sort of, um, uh, that's a sort of an, a vision of like, you know, how genetics can be used that, you know, some people, uh, can clearly f- find appealing, but, uh, but, uh, you know, but if we're thinking about, I know you don't want to get dip into the culture wars, but it's sort of, um, you know, so you can, you know, deal with this question, uh, however, however you want, but if, if you're, if your basic idea, you you know, you understand, for example, that, you know, yes, there's fewer, you know, there's more intelligent parents. I mean, there's more average parents than intelligent parents. So the average parents are going to, you know, there's going to be more geniuses produced by average parents than intelligent parents. But what, but what I think uh, the modern, uh, what people on the left do is they they want equality of outcome between the parents yes. earning over 100000 a year and the parents who are high school dropouts earning under 20000 yes. a year. And at the very least, even if we have the best tools in the world, you're probably yeah. not going to get equal outcomes, right? I, I really so, agree. Yeah. And it's what bothers me about Hardin's book. It's, it's, I don't think, very clear on it, but it does seem to me that um, people are substituting equality of opportunity for equality of outcome. And with genetics, there isn't going to be equality of outcome unless yeah. you go for... Then I guess by equity, isn't that what people really mean? They want outcomes to be equal. Yeah, practically, and and they infer. I mean, they I think they infer. Um, they infer that there was no equal opportunity from differences in outcome between groups, right? So you, maybe they'll say, you know, if we want equality over two, but we don't have equality opportunity yeah. because, you know, there are more men in engineering or there are more rich people who turn out to be rich than the right than the opposite. So the, the yeah. genetics sort of, it, it pierces a hole of that argument. You can't keep making that argument after uh, behavioral genetic, if you take behavioral genetics seriously. Yeah, well, I'd, I'd have to I agree with you on that. I do think there's you know, people have to recognize that there are genetic differences as teachers do, you know, they're, I've done surveys of teachers and they're not taught anything about genetics, but you can't teach 30 kids in a classroom and not be aware of genetic differences. You know, that you give the kids the same sort of educational your curriculum, but some kids 
you know, you just have to stand back and they go roaring off and other kids need a lot more help to get ahead. So we got to recognize that not all kids are the same. And I do think there's room as, as much as um, academic achievement and intellectual ability are valued in our society. I think there has to be room for more uh, recognition of diversity of talents. Like, you know, I think we need more plumbers and carers than we need professors. Sure. Absolutely. So, and, and I do think in England, there's a move towards this as there has been in Germany and Switzerland for a while towards more, you know, we used to call it vocational training, which has a bad name, but you know, in Germany, you can uh, go into uh, an apprentice like system where you get rigorous training but you also get a job and you get paid while you're doing and you have a job when you get out. Whereas, you know, a lot of kids in university now are taking courses that just aren't going to lead to jobs and they're going to be flipping hamburgers, you know, which can't be a great thing either. And in some ways, now this is really Pollyannish, but I, you know, I, I do think of, well, it's almost embarrassing to say it, but that universities aren't just factories producing good workers in areas, you know, that Mm -hmm. part of it is to, get people um, to learn stuff and and learn to learn and to enjoy learning. And um, you know what I mean? I'm I'm sure you've thought about these sorts of things, but uh, I I just like the bean counter approach to university education. And I I love it when you get undergraduates, you know, they're just thrilled to be learning about things, you know? And I wish we had more of that. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I think the idea that we're, we're, you know, the point of education is to, you know, it's like parent, like we talked about parenting, exactly the right, point, yeah. Yeah, just, just to get some outcome when, yeah, I mean, it takes away from the joy of just doing the thing that is actually valuable. Um, I, I think that that's yeah, a great, a great point. Um, so is, is uh, yeah, this has been great, uh, Robert. Is, is there anything, um, so you talked about you're not going to do the parenting book. Um, can you talk yeah. about what you're working on now, any future books or any uh, promising uh, areas of research? Yeah, well, it's just so exciting, you know, the, the DNA revolution, and there, there's new stuff coming out all the time. Like one thing I'm interested in now is there's just been one of these genome-wide association studies of sibling differences. And I think one of the hot areas is that people are going to recognize that kids in a family are 50% different genetically. And DNA is one of the best ways of getting at that because most of our family risk indicators, like if you had a father who was alcoholic, you'd have fivefold greater risk of becoming alcoholic, but so would your brother. Whereas with DNA, you can predict that, no, you are the one that will have much higher genetic risk than your brother. And I, so I think that's a, a, an area of research that, that just interests me particularly. Um, why are kids in the same family so different? Um, so that's just one example of a lot of different things we're doing, but um, uh, just one quick thing is I'm at the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychiatry, Neuroscience, and Psychology um, in King's College, London. And one of the developments of uh, the DNA revolution is it's really going to get rid of diagnostic categories. You know, this whole idea that you're either schizophrenic or not, or alcoholic or not. And one of the, the weirder things that's come out of the DNA data is that what we call little p, there's a general genetic influence on psychopathology. And many of the genes that affect bipolar depression affect schizophrenia, affect ADHD. There's a a lot of the genetic influence on psychopathology is very general in its effect. Whereas 
the diagnostic approach assumes that they're etiologically distinct disorders. And then the other bit of this is that there's a disorder at all because the DNA is normally distributed. You know, it's not like there's any breakpoint. It's uh-huh. not like there's a single gene that's necessary and sufficient for any of these disorders like schizophrenia. There's thousands of tiny DNA differences so that there's no genetic evidence for a, a break, a cut point there, which means we all have thousands of genetic risk factors for schizophrenia, but it's quantitative, not qualitative. It's a matter of more or less rather than either or. So I think this is really going to revolutionize psychiatry, which I think has been held back by the medical model, which assumes that there's a simple single gene or single cause. You know, like with COVID, it's caused by SARS, uh, um, COVID-2 virus. You don't get COVID unless you have the virus. And supposedly, if you have the virus, you get COVID. We know that's not true. There's a lot of people who are quite asymptomatic. But you know, Mm. that's where the medical model works. When you have a simple cause, whether it's environmental or genetic, then you want to diagnose, you want to make sure, like in the early stages of COVID, who's got COVID? Is this a cold or is this really COVID? And what are the symptoms like the loss of sense of smell or something like that? So it's really important to diagnose it. Because, you know, only then can you see what the cause is. But with common disorders and complex traits, there are no simple single causes, whether genetic or environmental. So I I find that very exciting, too. I think this is really going to be the nail in the coffin of the diagnostic classification scheme, which comes from the medical model, which I think has been really held back psychiatric research. So are, 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 would it be an accurate comparison to say that it's sort of there is, you know, there's emerging evidence of like, you know, the, I think a lot of our listeners will be familiar with the G factor of intelligence, that there is exactly. some kind of uh, common factor to different kinds of mental illnesses that, you know, people can be sort of, uh, uh, you know, graded on or a spectrum that people can be placed on. Is that sort of the idea? Absolutely. And that's why it's called little p. It was directly analogous uh-huh. to little g, the g factor, which is the same thing. You know, we think, you know, you think of like memory versus spatial ability versus vocabulary. They're so different cognitive processes, yet much of the genes, maybe about half of the genes involved in memory are the same genes involved in memory ability. Individual differences in memory are the same genes involved in spatial and Uh uh, verbal ability. So that general genetic influence is what we're talking about with G. And what we're finding in the last few years from molecular genetics is the same sort of thing in psychiatry, that the genes, that a lot of the genetic influence in psychiatry and in different psychological disorders are the same genes. There are also some specific ones. That's not surprising because people thought that these were completely etiologically distinct. But what's exciting and interesting is the idea that know that mo- a lot of the genetic influence, maybe half, is general. And so there's an interest in trans-diagnostic treatments because if the same factors are causing many different disorders, then perhaps there are treatments uh-huh. that will work across different disorders. So it's a whole new way of thinking about uh, psychopathology. That's so, fascinating. So it's it's just all very exciting, you know. And this is what happens, I think, when you bring a new area like genetics to a field like psychology, who for a century had ignored genetics. 
uh, is there a, I know this is uh, talked about a little bit in Blueprint. Is there a, you know, a review article or a book that you'd recommend people who are interested in uh, the P factor, so to speak? Yeah, well, it's, it's a number of um, new articles. There's no book yet out in that area. But if you, if you just Google P space factor, little P factor, um, you'll get the key articles. Um, I think one of the best is sort of a review article by um, my colleagues, Avshalom Caspi, C-A-S-P-Y, and his partner, Timmy Terry Muffet, M-O-F-F-I-T-T. Um, but but really, just Google uh, the P factor, and and you'll get uh, a number of these papers. They're still in the scientific literature. I don't know that there's any sort of uh, 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 presentation for the public yet because it's rather new. All of this, yeah. Well, fascinating. I mean, Robert, your uh, your love of science and sort of the avenues that the genetic research has uh, has opened is, you know, infectious. So, um, yeah, it's been great talking to you. And um, yeah, I wish you the best in your future research. Thanks. Terrific talking to you, Richard.